So anybody at City Field this past weekend? Woo! Yeah. Uh, talk about <laughs> how baseball explains New York. That was the Cliff Notes version on Saturday night. What a moving ceremony on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. You had the Yankees and the Mets standing shoulder to shoulder, not on separate foul lines, but interspersed together. Unity, solidarity, very moving. The next night, they're at each other's throats because somebody whistled. That's New York, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I it's, uh, yeah, I guess it is. Um, I think everybody was really has, has an open sore because of uh, what happened with Houston a, a few years ago. And, you know, the whistling uh, isn't against the rules based on the fact that they didn't use technology to get information. They were, ch they were pretty much calling the pitches pitches because, you know, of what he was doing or what he wasn't doing. Andy Pettit went through that in game six in the World Series in 01, where uh, uh, the Diamondbacks just uh, beat us up. And he was tipping his pitches. He was tipping his pitches. So, I mean, that's, that's not illegal to be able to, you know, communicate that. Let's talk about the ceremony I mentioned Saturday night. Um, obviously, the memories, emotions had to come back to both of you. So involved with the way baseball helped in its own small way for this city, for this country to recover from the 9-11 attacks. Bobby, when you, when you saw the ceremony on the field, what were the strongest emotions and memories that came back to you? Well, you know, standing with Joe on the sideline, watching the men in uniform, hearing the bagpipes walk across the field and the sound of a funeral for all intents and pur uh, purposes um, just brought me back 20 years ago to the funerals that we attended, to the people who were wounded so, so drastically from those horrific attacks um, that, that we were both shaken, we were touched and we were moved by the idea that we should never forget. Well, you told me a great story. I had not heard this before. Um, I remember watching Bobby during the national anthem being played September 21, the first game in New York after the attacks. The Mets are playing the Braves. And you guys remember, we weren't sure whether we should be playing baseball at that point. And the national anthem is being played, and I see Bobby Valentine with his shoulders back, his chin up. He's smiling, proud. Tell me the story about how you decided to really strike that obvious pose. Well, if you go back 20 years, we could all get that feeling of fear that we had in our hearts and our minds. We were attacked. We had never experienced before. And there was confusion. And the confusion was separated from the fear when I got the message from our commander in chief who said, hey, the bad guys are going to be watching. Make sure when you play this first game in New York City that they don't see you on your knees. They see you standing tall. And even though I was confused a bit and very fearful because we didn't know if it was the biggest bullseye that had ever been created by man. 
We didn't know if there was going to be another attack, and we decided to put 40,000 people in a stadium to make it easy for the bad guys. And during the national anthem, when I knew we would be on television, and maybe that dude in a cave somewhere across the world was looking, I wanted him to see me standing tall and not crying during our national anthem. And uh, it was kind of, it was a hard thing to do, I'll guarantee you that. Joe, what is it about baseball that people kind of sought inspiration from, or even just if it was comfort at that time? Why baseball? Well, what's interesting, when it happened that morning, um, I was home. Uh, we had been rained out the night before. Uh, Roger Clemens was pitching against, uh, was scheduled to pitch against his, against his former team, the Red Sox. He was going for his 20th win. And I had, a, uh, I had to be at a, a charity luncheon the next afternoon. So I didn't even have the TV on up in the bedroom, but I was milling around getting my clothes together and I got a phone call from, uh, from the um, car service that was gonna pick me up. And they said, I guess it's canceled. I said, what are you talking about? And I turned on the TV and I saw what all of us were watching. And I, my mind right away went to my daughter who was five years old and I know she was down with my wife and I wanted to make sure that she wasn't watching what I was, was seeing on TV. I went downstairs, my wife was handling that situation. It, it was frightening, as Bobby said. I mean, you, you, it scares you because, um, you know, all, all these attacks always happen on somebody else's turf. And, and you know, here we are in New York City and uh, it, it, it was scary. And I, I got to be honest, and, and to your question, Tommy, uh, you know, baseball all of a sudden wasn't on my mind. You know, it was, uh, you know, what's happening and what do we do? And, you know, fast forward a little bit when they decided that baseball was going to resume the following Monday uh, on a Saturday, because we were home, Bobby's club was on the road at the time it happened. And uh, we went uh, with about four vans to Manhattan. We went to, came here to the Javits Center where it was the staging area for all those first responders, firefighters that came from different parts of the country. That's where they were, you know, sleeping and eating and, and, and doing what they can. Hopefully there was gonna be a recovery, but, you know, obviously they, we, we didn't have any of that. And, um, and then from there we went to St. Francis uh, Hospital. Uh, and the sad part about it, there were no victims there. there. There were some firefighters who were dealing with smoke inhalation. Then, the, then we went to the armory, and I was a little hesitant about, you know, going in there because we had a lot of players had gone home. They got in a car and just started driving, and uh, and we went into the armory, you know, once somebody checked that, yeah, it's okay for us to go in because. The families were there waiting for DNA results about their loved ones. And I thought it was a very personal thing to intrude upon. And, uh, but we went in and we sort of stayed in the per uh, around the, uh, the perimeter of everybody gathered because there were low, low partitions that separated all the groups. And, and this woman, uh, we were waved over to this one family and we walked in and Bernie Williams uh, 
was, was with me, and he goes up to the woman, and he says, I, I don't know what to say to you. He says, but you look like you need a hug. And, and with that, he, he gave her a, a big hug, and, and it sort of opened the floodgates, because other families would come toward us with, with photos of their lost relatives uh, wearing Yankee garb, you know, the caps or jerseys and jackets and, and just talking about, you know, what big fans they were. And, and it was really at that point, you, you, when you ask, and I, earlier in the week, obviously baseball, <clears throat> you know, was a game we played. Uh, and all of a sudden at that point, I realized that we had something, you know, more important to do, and that's try to get in the way of these people's, uh, the, the grief that they, they were dealing with. And baseball was, was our vehicle. And I, I, the, the team got together in Chicago. We, we were going to play the White Sox. That was our first game on a Tuesday because uh, we didn't play on Monday. And I told them, I said, the NY on our caps, guys, it, it, you know, it represents New York, uh, not only the Yankees, but the city of New York. And, and like Bobby's team, you know, everybody was so determined and dug in and, uh, and uh, you know, and if, and if I think you know, if you're Yankee fans, and I, I was a member of the Yankees, people either love you or hate you. There was no middle ground there at all, okay? And when we went out there in Comiskey Park, there were signs, we love New York. You know, we love you and we love you. And it was so unlike going on a road trip normally with the Yankees. So you, you realize that, you know, it, it was our job as, uh, you know, baseball people to, you know, to, to try to distract. It's a, it's a weak word, distract, but just get in the way of their grief. And Tom, you know, Joe talks about lover, loving and hating the Yankees. Well, I grew up a Yankee fan. And just because God has a sense of humor, uh, I got to play for and then coach and manage the Mets. When I first got to the Mets, Joe was the manager, and I really loved him. And then he released me, and then that emotion changed. And then we got to do battle from 1996 through 2002. And for whatever it's worth, last night concluded a three-day game set in this Subway series. Well, when we first had to understand the undertaking of the Yankees and the Mets playing during the season, huh, Joe? Yeah. And they had us do it six times, three in one stadium and three in the others. And when we played against each other, we would have police motorcade escorts with the guys in uniform in a bus from our stadium to their stadium or their stadium to our stadium and check it out during rush hour they closed the highways down so it was just our buses and the motorcade going down the major deacon and crossing over the um, the Williamsburg Bridge. So it was a crazy situation that we lived through. And by the time 2000 came around and we had played these 
four years of interleague series games, we said to each other, and I remember Joe coming over to me and said, we got to stop doing this during the season. And I said, yeah, maybe we should start doing it after the season. And God was looking down, and we got to play a World Series against each other in 2000. Yeah. Let, let me just give you a, a, a second here, Tommy. <clears throat> you know, we used to play spring training. The end of spring training, we, the Yankees would play the Mets. The Mayor's Trophy game. You know, and, and, <clears throat> and I know, because <clears throat> I was on both sides. I managed the Mets for a while, and we were playing the Yankees in a game and um, you had to win, you know. If <laughs> you had to beat the Yankees or you had to beat the Mets. And I remember I was, I was with the Mets, we were playing at the Yankee Stadium, Billy Martin was managing the Yankees and it was the tie game, okay? All of a sudden a baseball comes over into our dugout and I, it rolled it toward me, I look at it and Billy Martin had sent me a note on a baseball and he said, who's gonna squeeze, you or me? You know, who's gonna end this game, basically? <laughs> and, and then when I was managing the Yankees, the first year in 96, we finished spring training with three games against the, uh, the Mets before we went to Cleveland to open the season. And George Steinbrenner comes in my office and he says to me, um, you know, you got to beat these guys. You got to beat these guys. Well, it doesn't mean anything. It's, it's spring, spring training. training. And so he says, you got you to beat these guys. I said, let me ask you something, George. Now I'm just trying to lighten the mood here. Uh, I said, if you had a choice of beating the Mets two out of three or beating Cleveland two out of three, which one would you choose? George's answer was, don't ask me that question. <laughs> so it told you, it tells you how important it was uh, against each team. And then we did play in the World Series in 2000, and we lose the first game at Shea Stadium. George Steinbrenner had all our furniture from Yankee Stadium Clubhouse moved in to Shea Stadium Clubhouse to make us feel at home because he saw too many Met logos in our, in our clubhouse. <laughs> this stuff, this is for real, guys. <laughs> Well, speaking of George Steinbrenner, your former boss, he used to talk about how he wanted his teams to really represent New York. In New York, he used to say, you have to fight to get a cab. You have to fight to get a seat on the subway. You have to fight to get space on the sidewalk to walk. So he wanted the Yankees to have that same mindset. So as a manager, did you find that there are some players who you might go, I don't know if he can play in New York. Is there something, too, that it takes something a little bit different to play and succeed in New York? Uh, yeah, I think there are players, uh, first of all, I think New Yorkers uh, realize that, you know, you have to have thick skin. And, you know, some players uh, don't handle criticism very well. I mean, none of us like it. Uh, but, you know, you have to understand that goes it goes with it, you know, yeah, this is part of the deal you make. And there are players that you could see weren't the same players that when they played in New York uh, as when they were playing with their previous club somewhere else. It, and again, you know, you, you don't want to name those players, but they, uh, they, they just weren't as comfortable. Uh, they were aware 
And, and the biggest mistake you make is making sure you read all the, well, at that time there were newspapers, uh, that you read all the newspapers and listen to all the, all the radio shows that are telling you how good you are or how bad you were. And uh, if you do that, then you're, you're hooked, you're, you're stuck. And you're going to have the pleasure of listening to Steve Cohen soon here in this conference, who now owns the New York Mets, talking about owners. I don't think he's going to talk about the Mets. He's probably going to talk about uh, how you could be like him when you all grow up. But um, uh, when I got hired by his predecessor, Fred Wilpon, the one thing that Fred wanted me to do was get the back pages away from the New York Mets. It wasn't about winning the World Series. I mean, about, uh, from the New York Yankees. It was about getting the back pages away from the New York Yankees. So it's all, it's all an interesting, crazy world that we live in. Huh? Aren't you happy you own this can, can of worms? It's here? all the media's fault anyway. When in doubt, <laughs> just blame the media. But didn't you say when you were hired by the Yankees that you were not going to read the newspapers? I didn't. And you really were able to do that, yeah, to, I, to shut out all that noise. Well, let, let's admit it. I, I was living in Cincinnati at the time, I, I, and the reason I was, I was fired the third time. Uh, oh, I know that you know, feeling. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I was fired by the uh, you know, St. Louis Cardinals, and I moved to Cincinnati because my, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, and, and my wife, Allie, is from Cincinnati, so I thought, let her be surrounded while she's pregnant, let her be surrounded by family when I was out looking for a job. And, you know, the first word I got when my name came up as, uh, you know, the possible manager to take uh, Buck Showalter's place was Clueless Joe. That was the headline in the paper. You want a headline, take it. <laughs> uh, it was Clueless Joe. So, you know, the only thing that came to my mind is, all well and good, you know, it's all gonna come down to how we do. I mean, I, you know, of course I'd been around long enough when you get, you know, when you get uh, fired three times, I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? You, you could know, get, you fired get fired again. Fired. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and that was, uh, you know, I had a special group. There was no question about it. Players that uh, just were so resilient and um, very determined. How about you, Bobby? Did you pay attention to... I read every newspaper. Of course I did. The, uh, what, are you kidding me? Yeah, everyone, and wanted to respond to every guy. When you came in after writing a bad article, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I responded to you. So you did. Actually, Jay Horowitz, our PR director, who was spectacular during my tenure with the New York Mets, would give me all of the good clips when I got to the office and made sure that I read them. And then after I read all the good clips, he'd say, oh, and by the way, uh, Clappish killed you this morning in the post, or Verducci really got you in the Times. And so I wouldn't read those articles to tell you the <laughs> truth. <laughs> Joe, you've had an incredible baseball career in so many different capacities, most recently with Major League Baseball. Um, the only job you haven't had is commissioner. But I, I'm going to make you a virtual commissioner because there's a lot of things we all want to see baseball improve upon. So if I could make you commissioner, what do you think maybe the one or two things that you would like to change to have this game be as good as it can be? Well, first off, uh, the talent out there on the field now is amazing. I mean, these kids, uh, you know, we didn't have any weight training until like the middle 70s. I mean, you, 
you know, you spring training, you used to come down as a player and you'd run until you threw up. I mean, that's how you got in shape. Uh, you know, and all of a sudden the players started paying attention to their conditioning during, you know, obviously during and, and even off season. Um, but to me, I think what's missing, and I, and I always try to restrain myself because, you know, I'm 80, 81 years old and... And doesn't he look great? No, don't, huh? don't do huh? that. 81 years old, huh? No. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, now what was I I'm saying? I'm sorry, you were saying about getting checked. You got to remember. You're the commissioner the, for the day. No. You're the commissioner. You're no, going to change I, I, one thing. I say I'm 81 years old, and I, I think I've got to restrain myself because, you know, I'm looking at it from, from my perspective. Uh, but the game of baseball is so much more than hitting home runs, even though we all love it, you know, when it's for your team. Um, but there's, there's more excitement that should be had during the course of the game on the field. And, and to me, um, I, I don't know how you change it, Tommy. You know, you, you've got teams that are, that are teaching, you know, things um, as far as hitting balls out of the ballpark. I think a big part of it uh, is because there's an incentive for players to do this because they go to arbitration and they get paid on, you know, because of their statistics. Uh, I think we got to find a way to incentivize team play and doing little things in baseball which really contribute to the teams that win because they have to make sure they you know, they, they do little things like moving runners, uh, being able to put the ball in play, uh, different things, and it's boring when you talk about it. But if, trust me, if you're sitting in the dugout uh, with a man at third base and less than two out, you want contact. You want a chance to score a run. Uh, and that's really team the team on, you know, how you, uh, how you proceed and try to win a ball game. Um, you know, I, I, you know, to me, I think, um, you know, we, we should be able to, I think we need to make sure that the game is what we're trying to fix and have the Players Association and the owners be able to keep that in mind when they negotiate contracts. What's best for the game? Uh, and I think we're seeing this, and I'm not a political person other than wearing a Bobby for mayor uh, <laughs> pin here, um, on everybody's trying to win the day and get the best of somebody instead of, uh, you know, trying to do what's best for, for all of us. And um, as I say, I'm an old fuddy-duddy, but uh, I, I like the fact that, you know, baseball, when you can enjoy defensive plays and base stealing and running first to third and the fact that you don't have to be big and strong to be able to play our game, you know, uh, I think is, is important to, to really uh, have them be a part of, of successes in our game. Well, I think everybody in this room realizes the world just keeps moving faster and faster, right? I think Bobby cut three Bitcoin deals just while we were waiting to come on stage <laughs> up here. 
So, Bobby, my question would be about baseball. Does it succeed because maybe it's a respite from how hurried we are and short attention spans, or will it only succeed if it quickens up its own pace to kind of match the pace of our society? Interesting. See, I think the, that essence of baseball that Joe is talking about uh, gets back to that communication between people who are watching the game. And a lot of times we talked about it being the father and the son, the mother and the daughter, the father and the daughter who would go to a game and share the experience. Part of the experience in our country of watching baseball was the time lapse that you had in between plays for the father and the son, the mother and the daughter, the father and the daughter to talk about what happened or what's going to happen. And most of that conversation dealt with what Joe's speaking of. The bunt that might be or might not be. The squeeze that might could or shouldn't could. The stolen base, the way the ball was thrown from the outfield. All the nuances of the game have literally been taken out of the game by the idea that you pay for the statistical value of the individual player, huh, if that makes any sense to you. So the only thing that we're waiting for is how far the guy's going to hit it or how fast the guy's going to throw it, and there's no conversation about the game during that time. And that's why it seems like it's such a long game, because you're just waiting around for the home run or the 100-mile-an-hour pitch. And I think we need to get that stuff back. One of the things they deal with today, if you watch baseball, is shifts. Hey, everyone shifts, and, and the purists say, oh, what are those shifts? They're all based on the, the, the analytics of where a ball might be hit. I don't think the shifts are going to go away. I think they're part of the game. But I think that they should limit the number of shifts so that the manager now comes back into play, in, into that discussion of what he should do for this hitter. Should he use a shift or not use a shift in the first inning? He might run out of shifts and not have it in the ninth inning when he needs it. And things like that, maybe even require three plays to be executed on offense by the offense. You know, three plays during the game. A bun, a hit and run, a stolen base, something like that. And then you could sit around and figure out when the manager does do those plays and when he should have done those plays and talk about it. I think we've taken the conversation out of the game, and I think that's really killed the game. I love anyway. baseball conversation. <laughs> One word you'll hear a lot here, and it's an important word, is leadership. It's hard to define, but it's used a lot. Joe, you were just in Cooperstown, New York last week. Derek Jeter inducted into the Hall of Fame. I never thought of Derek as a vocal leader, but he certainly was, I thought, the leader. And leadership in the, in the way that people look to how you carry yourself, how you respond, especially in times of adversity. You know him as well as anybody. What made Derek Jeter a leader? Well, I mean, to me, um, if, if you're going to be successful, you know, the first thing you need to understand is you have to deal with uh, failure. You've got to be able, instead of saying, I wish that didn't happen, you realize that it's not going to change it, so you've got to move on. Derek was not afraid to fail. I mean, that's, that's the one thing. Uh, he had a horrible spring that first year in 96, 
and there was conversation about sending him back to the minor leagues and whatever. When you looked in his eyes every day, he was the same kid out there getting ready to play. And uh, there was something very special about him, so special. I mean, again, leaders, you know, we all probably have a different idea on what leadership is. But leadership, to me, is the ability to listen and the fact that you lead by example. You know, you don't tell people what to do, you show people how to do it. And it doesn't mean ability-wise, it's effort, preparation, and all that. Derek Jeter, by probably August of his rookie year, you had the veteran players looking to him to do something special. Because he had earned that trust over the first, you know, four or five months of the season that these players trusted him. And, uh, and he never changed, never changed. Uh, you know, he, he, was, he showed up for work every day. Uh, you know, he didn't always do well, um, but he showed up there every day. I, we had opening day in Toronto one time and he tried to go from first to third. They had a, a shift on and he was trying to go from first to third and uh, the catcher came from behind the plate to, to cover and he wind up putting his knee down and tagged Derek. He wind up dislocating his shoulder. I went out there, you know, with our trainer, obviously, and he's laying on his back. He says, I'll be in there to miss them. I'll be in there tomorrow, Mr. T. I said, yeah, you will. Sure you will. Uh, but that's who he was. Uh, that's who he was. He was a leader uh, in on the field and off the field. And again, he didn't talk a whole lot. I mean, he, he really, when, when George named him captain, that was something he didn't really want because he didn't want the attention. Uh, but he certainly uh, never backed off on who he was. And showed right again last week in, in Cooperstown. His speech was right on, uh, touched on you know his teammates, who he valued so dearly. Because, uh, see, you know, if he'd walk in the dugout and he'd, somebody who was supposed to, you know, like well, everyday player wouldn't be in the lineup, and he'd say, what happened to such and such? And I'd say, well, he, you know, didn't feel good or whatever. He'd, he'd just give me that roll his eyes thing and walk down the uh, other end of the dugout. It wasn't his cup of tea. Bobby, you played in Los Angeles. You managed in Texas, New York. Boston, when I mentioned that word leadership, who are maybe the one or two guys that came to your mind that you saw that quality in? Well, Derek Jeter. <laughs> Joe, you said he failed. How come in seven years that we played against each other, he never failed <laughs> playing against the Mets? Um, can't figure that one out, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, I, you know, I had, a, I had a leader on my team. His name was Pete O'Brien. It was a really interesting thing. I thought of as a captain of a team when I was first managing. I was a young guy. I was 35 years old, 36 years old, 37 years old. And now after the third year of managing and my end-of-the-year meetings, I had the meeting with Pete O'Brien, and I said, do you have anything else to say about your year and everything that went on? And, and he looked at me and he said, yeah, I have something to tell you, Bobby, if that's okay. And I said, what's that? He says, you know, you think and talk about winning too much. And I thought, this is the leader of my team. 
And he just told me that I think about winning too much. I better trade this guy and get him out of my clubhouse. Luckily, it was at the end of the season, and I had a long time to think about that. And after thinking about it, I realized that I was talking and thinking about the end of the game, winning too much, and not concentrating on what happens during the game to get to the win. And so that leader, who was a young guy at the time, taught me how leaders are supposed to lead, and that's by being part of the process that make things happen properly so you get the results that are needed. That's a great point. And I'll leave you with my own observation because I always looked up, and I'm sure you guys did as well, to Vin Scully, the best in the business, who remained the best in the business even into his 80s. Just an amazing career as a broadcaster with the LA Dodgers. So I asked Vin Scully one day, how could you possibly be this good for this long. And he actually borrowed a line from the actor Laurence Olivier, and he said, the, the humility to prepare and the confidence to pull it off. And I thought about that, it makes perfect sense. Humility to prepare means knowing what you don't know, even when you're as accomplished as Vin Scully, to do the work as if you're trying to establish yourself, even when you already are established. And then the confidence to pull it off is something that obviously comes within all of us. We get confidence from people around us, but if you don't have it internally, that external confidence is not going to resonate. So that really has stuck with me. I think it's a great lesson, if you will, or certainly advice from one of the best in the business. And finally, I wanted to thank these two gentlemen here because when you do talk about leadership, and especially in this great city, they're on the short list. Joe Torre, Bobby Valentine, True leaders, thank you guys so much. We've enjoyed this. Thank you, Tom.